I'm starting this week, as I sometimes do, with a Calvin and Hobbes strip, because Calvin and Hobbes was my absolute favorite comic strip growing up, and I've successfully passed that love on to my children, who now demand that it be our bedtime story every night. I think we're on about our fifth or sixth time through the full three-volume complete set (laughs) that I got as a present at some point. Uh, And as you go through those night after night, there are just too many sermon illustrations uh, in there to pass up. So you're stuck with a comic strip now and then, I'm afraid. In this particular comic strip, we have Calvin and Hobbes sitting together. I showed a picture of this when we were live, but I'm going to have to just read it for you instead uh, for the podcast. But you have Calvin and Hobbes sitting there under a tree, and Calvin says, why do you suppose we're here? Hobbes replies, because we walked here? No, no, I mean here on Earth. Because Earth can support life? No, I mean, why are we anywhere? Why do we exist? Because we were born? And then the final panel is Calvin saying, forget it. And Hobbes replying, I will, thank you. As far as we can tell, humans like Calvin are the only creatures to have those sorts of existential questions about who we are and where we fit and what it all means. Animals like Hobbes, not so much. Many scholars of religion argue that those sorts of impulses and questions are what has given rise to the many different religions that have existed amongst humanity for as far back in prehistory as we're able to reach with our anthropology. Trying to answer those questions, to order our existence in some sort of meaningful way, is what many religions seem to be for. And in most religions, there are stories from the distant mythological past that attempt to address those questions. Who are we? What's our purpose? What makes sense of it all? And this is absolutely true of all the religious systems that were present in the cultural setting that the people of Israel would have found themselves in in biblical times. We've talked before about the creation stories in those cultures, how the world began after a cosmic violent struggle for supremacy amongst the gods, ending often with the final defeat of a mother goddess figure whose dead body then becomes the land. At this point in the story, often, the gods are tired and they want to rest. They want to be waited upon and taken care of. And so they create humans to be their servants. Humans' job then is to work and toil so as to be able to provide sacrifices of grain and bread and animals for the gods' pleasure. But wouldn't you know it, humans prove to be an unruly bunch, prone to disorder and infighting and laziness. And the problem with this is that it interrupts the gods' leisure time. They're having to constantly make sure their slaves are doing what they're supposed to do. And so the gods come up with a solution. They create the king and make this king in their own image. Not in the sense that the king looks like one of the gods, but in the sense that the king is the stand-in for the representative of the gods. The king's job, then, is to keep humans in line so that they do what they're supposed to do for the gods and the gods can sit back and relax, finally. The implicit promise is that if humans do what they're supposed to do for the gods, then the gods will protect and provide for the humans. So, in that sort of system, who are we and what is our purpose? Well, in the ancient world, the answer was that we humans are supposed to obey the king And do whatever he says, because he is the representative of the gods on earth. And the only way to ensure our own and our family's survival is to keep the gods happy, which we do by obeying the king. Pretty good gig for the king, huh? It's almost like the powerful made up these stories for their own benefit. (laughs) 
to convince the rest of the people that the gods must be mostly concerned with the halls of power. That for all the normal people, the way to meaning and purpose is to obey, and access to the gods is restricted and under the control of the king and the king's representatives. This is the meaning, in part, of Pharaoh being considered a god in his own right, that he has access to and relationship with the gods that are simply not available to, you know, the normals. This idea that the royals are uniquely touched by the gods in a way that normal people are not is shockingly persistent, at least for someone like me who has grown up in the kingless environment of America. But King Charles of England, as part of his coronation just this year, was also installed as the head of the Anglican Church, (laughs) also known as the denomination which exists entirely because Henry VIII wanted a new wife. And maybe the best example I know of, of this line of thinking, and I don't know how I stumbled across this nugget, but I thought it was hilarious and fascinating. Uh, Only about 150 years ago, after they got independence from the Ottoman Empire, the Greeks held an election for who should be their new king, because of course they needed a king. The overwhelming winner, with over 95% of the vote to be the new king of Greece, was the Duke of Edinburgh. Prince Alfred, the second son of the King of England. He uh, wasn't Greek. And when he refused the job, the Greeks turned to a whole series of lesser vote-getters, who also weren't Greek, but who did hail from the royal families of Germany, Russia, France, and Italy. They all turned down the job, too. And finally, the role of King of Greece fell to Prince William of Denmark, who, get this, got six votes out of 240,000 cast. And then, as recently as World War II, the Greek people voted to keep Prince William's grandson as king. He still didn't have a drop of Greek blood in him, but he was still the king of Greece. That is how deeply the belief has run in much of the world that there is something fundamentally different about royalty and their divinely appointed right to be the rulers of we normals. You know, if we, the Greeks, don't have any royalty in our own country, then we need to go outside of our country to find some because we need to be ruled by someone who has been touched by the gods. From the ancient world all the way to the modern one, one of the most prevalent answers to those questions that we started with is that our purpose and what it all means is that we are meant to obey the king, who is the representative of the gods. And this belief comes with the corollary that, therefore, the gods are to be found in the halls of power. Even today within the church, you can still find this association of God and power, that the halls of power are in some sense the rightful place for God. There's a sense that a successful pastor should look the part, that they should have access to the inner circles of the rich, the influential, the powerful, and anyone who's followed how the prominent megachurch pastors of the past few decades have operated, from Willow Creek to Hillsong, will see the outworkings of that logic. Well, sure, God's for everyone, but really, God's at home in the halls of power, just like the gods have always been. But the Bible gives us a very different account of where God can be found. In Genesis 1, it is not the king who is the representative of God, but rather all of humanity, male and female. It's one of the key differences about the creation story in the Bible, as compared to all the other creation stories, that all humanity and both genders are representatives of God. And humanity's job in Genesis is not to provide for God's needs, but instead to rule well over creation in a way that reflects the character of God. And when we come to our story in Exodus, 
we're confronted with a very different reality as well. Where does God show up in the story of Exodus and the plagues? Well, first, God shows up through the actions of the midwives of the Hebrew people, who are commanded one thing by Pharaoh, but then do the work of God in, and therefore bring God into, the birthing rooms of the Hebrew women. Then, God shows up in a burning bush in the forsaken wilderness. God's voice doesn't come from Pharaoh's palace. It doesn't even show up close to the Nile River, which would have been Egypt proper. This God, Yahweh, his holy place is the middle of nowhere, in the presence of a disgraced shepherd, Moses. In fact, Yahweh is so not at home in Pharaoh's palace that Pharaoh needs representatives, Moses and Aaron, to come from God to speak to him. This God refuses to even show their face in the palace. Instead, Yahweh says to Moses, I will make you a God to Pharaoh, with Moses as God's messenger and representative. Repeatedly, through the plague stories, Yahweh is called the God of the Hebrews, that is, the God of the lower class ethnic minority slaves. Far from the palace, this God is at home in the slave huts of Goshen, keeping the people safe from the plagues. That is where God's presence remains throughout the plague stories. Later, God is to be found as a pillar of cloud or smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, a pillar whose purpose is to guard a huddled mass of frightened, escaped slaves, guiding them and blocking the armies of the powerful from them. This God, it seems, is not like the other gods. I'm in debt to the scholar Walter Brueggemann for this insight that when we think about the uniqueness, the holiness, the differentness of Yahweh in this story, the first thing we might think of is power, that our God is more powerful than the gods of Egypt. This God is more impressive and can better take care of their people, and that's true. But it isn't the only, or maybe even the most important aspect of God's uniqueness. Who is this Yahweh? They are different from the gods of Egypt. And that differentness, that holiness, is seen in the character of our God as well, and specifically where our God can be found. This God is not only to be found in the halls of power. Sometimes they aren't found in the halls of power at all. This God, unlike all the other gods, is more at home in the slave huts. And that is a far more profound difference than just being more powerful than. This is something we always need to remind ourselves of because power always tries to co-opt God. Like in the plague stories when Pharaoh gives the option that, okay, fine, the people can sacrifice to Yahweh, but within the borders of Egypt. That is, still within Pharaoh's control and jurisdiction. Moses rejects it out of hand because this God, unlike all the others, is not beholden to Pharaoh. The people cannot serve this God and serve Pharaoh at the same time. I think we all could think of examples today of power trying to co-opt God, trying to use them for some purpose that really only serves the desires of the powerful, of the rich acting as if it is their inalienable right to get preferential treatment from God and from God's representatives, of the government putting a divine rubber stamp on their own initiatives. But this is not who our God is. All the other gods are that way. But Yahweh is holy, unique. Yahweh does not bow to power. Yahweh is at home with the Hebrews, the slaves, the underclass, the downtrodden. That is who our God, and only our God, is. Many of you are familiar with the work of Father Greg Boyle, 
One of his core messages from his work with, we could say, some of the Hebrews of our day, the gang members and ex-gang members and others who live in the poorest neighborhoods of Los Angeles, his message is kinship, that we see and treat people, all people, not as others, but as family. A message like that has the danger of being misheard as some sort of humanitarian, we are the world, the Russians love their children too platitude. But when we read the story of Exodus rightly, when we pay attention to where Yahweh is and where they are not through the story of the plagues and their aftermath, we will see that kinship is so much more than a platitude. It's nothing less than a reflection of who our God is. Who is this Yahweh? They are a God unlike all other gods. A God who refuses to be co-opted by power, who makes a family of the forsaken, and who invites their people to go and do likewise.